and welcome to this second instalment of The Guru, taking place at Guru Live, a two-day showcase of advice and inspiration taking place in London and Glasgow. I'm Rihanna Dillon, and today we're hearing from the world of television. If you'd like to understand more about how to pitch a show, direct your first broadcast hour, or just how to move on in your career, this is the place to be. Stay with us. In the last episode, we heard how to start a career in film, and we start today with the same question, but in the TV industry. So if you're not sure how to get to that next rung of the career ladder, this panel will give you the leg up. Let's hear from BAFTA breakthrough Brit Vinay Patel, the writer of BBC's Murdered by My Father. Danielle Morrissey, Head of Talent, Entertainment, Music and Events for the BBC. Helen Veal, Creative Director of Outline Productions. And Stephanie Clond, who's worked on Junior Doctors and The Secret Millionaire. Let's hear a clip with Stephanie, where she explains what it takes to get that first job in TV. Your host is Ade Rawcliffe from Channel 4. I think that um, working in production and on location or casting or whatever job you end up doing in TV, you just have to be so organised. I think a kind of misconception of telly is kind of, it's fun, you know, it can be fun, but it's not kind of casual. There's so many kind of legal requirements working on productions. You have to work to deadlines and just to be meticulous and organised, I think, is really important um, because things can happen quickly and, you know, you need to be on top of things and be a kind of safe pair of hands on a production. Also, I think kind of, yeah, determination, having a, a thick skin is something that you kind of need to learn. Um, you know, when you're casting, you're trying to find people to be on a TV show or you're trying to set something up or even if you're just trying to get a job, people are going to say no to you all the time and you have to learn to kind of not take things personally and kind of learn from that and just keep, you know, moving forward. Ability to take criticism. Yes, exactly. What about you, Helen, when you're looking for people that you would employ at Outline? Can I talk about the things that I'm not looking for? Or that, um, <laughs> okay. If, if that helps. Um, if people write to me, and this sounds really anal and uptight, but if there are spelling mistakes in the letter, it just absolutely drives me mental. Mm. Particularly, we've all got spell check these days, or we've all got a friend. Don't send people letters that have got spelling mistakes in them, because if I'm going to hire you as a researcher or as an AP, I need to trust you to do things properly and diligently. And if you can't be bothered to spell check a letter or a CV, honestly, that makes me crazy. And the other thing that makes me crazy is when I get a letter that goes, Dear Abigail, I've always wanted to work in drama production, and I just go, for crying out loud, you know, if you really want to work in a particular genre of television, they're not all the same. Decide what you want to do. Decide who you're writing to and why you're writing to them. You write to me about wanting to work in factual entertainment or popular factual telly. Don't write to me and say you've always longed for a career in drama, because I'm going to think you're a bloody idiot. And, but also, anybody who you're writing to about a career in drama is going to see through you if your interest in drama is so superficial that you don't actually know which is the drama production company and which isn't. I think the thing about television is it's very broad, and there will be, for each of you, with each of your creative still skill sets and cast of mind, something click that's absolutely right for you, and it's going to be much easier to make that breakthrough if you have a think about it and, and do your work around it, do a bit of research, have a think about the programmes that you enjoy, do some research about the companies that literally make the programmes that you enjoy, and get in touch with them about that specific kind of programme. And Vinnie, you're a writer, so what sort of attributes do you think you need to make it as a writer in this industry? 
Um, writing so, skills? Writing yeah. skills, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough, like, um, it will sound like mad to say it, but like, I don't think it's so much about being talented. Like, if, you know, obviously to a certain amount, yes, but like... This is so, a guy who's got a BAFTA nomination. But like, <laughs> but like, but like, but like, okay, so example, like, when I did, I did a master's in writing, and I definitely wasn't the best writer on my course by long, but I wanted it more than a lot of people, I think, so I worked really hard and pushed myself to always Every new project I did was asking myself, how is this going to improve my skill set as a writer? What was all those, especially early on? And I think you can get really, you'll find that thing that you're really good at and like stick to it. Like whether it's like, I'm just really good at writing dialogues. I'll just write reams and reams of shit. And actually, I think early on it is about identifying where you're good at, but where you're not good at and learning and really pushing yourself to improve that as a writer. And then in terms of industry stuff, it is like everything from said here, it is about Diligence, it is about resilience, it is about being able to take criticism. I mean, I started off in theatre and the switch between that and television is the pace, the change of pace is dramatic. Like, you have to be able to deliver um, better, faster. Uh, but it pays better as well, so, you know, there, are, there, there is a, there's a reason why they ask that of you. And I feel massively hypocritical saying that, considering I'm behind on two deadlines. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 but I mean, and if you are going to struggle, it's always good about... The worst thing, I think, is when people think of writers as being, you know, quite flouncy and up in the air, and so you can sort of get away with lots of stuff. It's like you have to treat work, especially if you're going to be in television, as you are a professional, just like being an AP, just like being a producer. You have to be on that level of skills because, you know, they're going to throw millions, possibly, of pounds at the thing that you write, so you better damn well make it worth it. That was Vinay Patel. In Glasgow, we had a different panel approach the same topic, career progression. We heard from comedian Susan Kalman, Phil Edgar-Jones, the director of Sky Arts, and Sharon Rooney, star of My Mad Fat Diary. It was hosted by Muriel Gray. Let's take a listen. Let's talk about the, the real elephant in the room about actually living and working in Scotland, because we're all internationalists here. Um, you obviously touch, but you know, you, you, you operate out of London. The, the, the rest of us uh, are based in Scotland, but work elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, how hard is it? I mean, presenteeism is sometimes really important, mm. isn't it? For me, for example, last week, uh, on Thursday at five o'clock, could I pop down to London for a 15-minute audition? Well, that'll cost me five hundred pounds. Mm. I've done that, and I will still. I will still do it. I will ask them first of all if they could possibly coincide with a day I'm already there. So on Wednesday, I got the sleeper down audition, filmed a TV show, sleeper back up again. How good's the sleeper though? Oh. <laughs> I think the thing is for me, it is people, and I'm sometimes booked because I am Scottish, because they're required to tick that box, as we all now know, (laughs) but they will no longer pay travel. So, for example, when I do some shows, I lose money. Some panel shows or television shows, I lose money, because they 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 want you there because you're Scottish, because you've got an interesting voice, but they won't pay for you to come from Scotland. And sometimes it's just the logistics. If I'm asked to film something, I have to factor in the travel time and sometimes they forget. And the money of having to have a hotel and having to do all that kind of stuff, it is incredible. Th- I'm not saying my career would have been better because I think I would have been a, a different comedian had I lived in London and joined in all that kind of social life. So I prefer being here. But my God, it is tough. And it's more expensive. There is no question. My train fare bill, happy to say this, to my <coughs> accountant last year, was £30,000. Oh, 
I spent 30 grand on trains last year. Until I started making some money on some shows, my entire, everything I earned went on getting to the places I was going. So there were years where I earned absolutely no money because I just had to get to the jobs. Well, as a commissioner, I'm discussing that for a bit, Phil, because obviously, I mean, a lot of people, Susan's right, they, they want you because you're Scottish, but they assume that you'll live in London. Um, and so, I mean, is there is there any is there any advantage for people staying put in Scotland? Oh gosh, I think that's really. Please difficult. say yes. I've just bought a house. Yes. <laughs> so I think the best thing to do is that's a pretty difficult question for me to answer because it's. Um, I mean, I I commissioned I commissioned Scottish production companies. Yes. Um, but they fly to yeah, us, yeah, and yeah. I come up occasionally, but yeah. but generally most of the activity happens, mm-hmm. of course, in in Scotland and. You know, at Sky, we don't have a particular... I mean, BBC and Channel 4 have a remit to do stuff in the regions. We don't have that, yeah. but we do do it. I mean, it does... I, you know, when I... I shouldn't say this, but when I see my BBC and Channel 4 colleagues, there still is a snootiness about working in the regions I think, and the nations. There still is. And there's still a lot of barriers to overcome. I'm all for Channel 4 moving out of London, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think things like that can, can kick-start an industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, de- like, there's no doubt about it. You know, I moved to London to try and get a job this was a long time ago. I think it's still true that that's the, the epicentre of the media and that's mm-hmm. kind of where it all happens. You can work a lot more remotely now, uh, which is easier, so we can do viewings much more easily with Scottish production companies or Irish production companies because mm. of the way technology works, but still, uh, presenteeism is... It is. I mean, Unfortunately, you can, you can obviously <coughs> do additions down the line, and you can do them yeah. on tape and everything. But but it's also that you said networking. It's actually just meeting people. Mm-hmm. Actually, you might just make that connection mm-hmm. and, and bump into them. And so mm-hmm. on. it is quite difficult. I think you. I've learned recently to. I would never ask to do a self tape if it wasn't given to me as an option. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't ask. But now, like you're saying, I get scary bills like that from my accountant, mm-hmm. and I go actually. Sometimes it's okay to ask. Mm-hmm. Can I self tape? Because a lot of the time you you spend all that money, you go down, and it's you and the casting director. It's just used to. Mm-hmm. So if you get a recall, you're coming back anyway to meet the director because all you're going to do is tape. And if it's a casting director you've met before, mm-hmm. if you've met them before, there's no harm in saying, "Look, can I tape?" But then if you're going to tape, make it a nice tape. Like I've invested in some lights. I've got like yeah. a little studio. Don't send them a tape of like you and your pal. <laughs> <laughs> like, go actually, you know. Yeah. Like, Back to London and onto factual television. A well-constructed story is key to a compelling documentary. As luck would have it, we had a very talented storyteller at BAFTA. Emma Loach is commissioning editor of documentaries for the BBC. And let's hear from one of Emma's shows now. Ambulance was a BBC specialist factual following ambulances in London. Let's hear a clip and then from Emma. We're going to... How old is this? Eric, who's fallen over. He's got a back injury and he's slouched on the chair. Call came in at what time? Seven o'clock. Oh, man. It's ten o'clock. Three hours old. And he's 92. Bless him. Three hours ain't fair, is it? No. Poor old Eric. Let's go and see if he's all right. Shaney and Dave are a five-minute drive from Eric's house. Two miles away, at Hampstead train station, an emergency miscarriage call is in progress. The hope coming. No! No heartbeat. I've had a fan. There's her. no heartbeat, Colin. She has a fan. Just reassure her that she is doing very well, OK? And help will be with her as soon as possible, OK? 
Shani and Dave are now 300 metres from Eric's front door. The miscarriage patient in Hampstead is a higher priority, so the allocator desk must divert them to Hampstead. I think often in documentaries you, you tell a, a small story, you go, in, you go in close to try and sort of illuminate a bigger thing. Um, so you're trying to talk about addiction and relationships with parents by telling one particular story. And that's what we've, I've done all my career. And I think what we were trying to do in this is sometimes you want to sort of have a flash of the horizon because it's quite hard to, you know, I've made lots of hospital programs and it's quite hard to tell a close story to explain or to extrapolate to the sort of, the reason they can't do that is because this is happening over here. And it's, it's quite a hard thing to tell. You can sort of do it by putting two stories, juxtapositioning two stories, but you don't actually see the real dilemma or the real... The graphics are brilliant. Yeah, and, it, and we just, we, so we, we were trying to work out how can you see the whole horizon of everything that the London Ambulance Service was having to deal with. And it came out of documentaries department, but it obviously has this specialist factual layer. I've never worked with graphics before in my life, but it was actually really satisfying because it felt like it added to it. And as you say, for that moment, you just got a flash of, oh, bloody hell, this is happening everywhere. This is, you see the decisions everywhere. that people yeah. to make. It's um, but okay. didn't seem to take away from the documentary yeah. aspect. And I, you know, I'd sort of... That was a, it was quite satisfying at the time. But you're layering it on as well, aren't you, with the, with the sort of the audio that you've got. Yeah. So you're being able to build some yeah. narrative, yeah. but collect them really elegantly. Yeah. And I think we used to think in telly that there, you know, there are lots of different genres that can't speak to each other. And especially as factual is very different to factual, which is very different to pop, you know, it's, it's obviously it's all bollocks. I mean, we're just trying to tell stories and you use whatever's in your armour to tell that story the best. And, and each story is very different and each story needs different elements. So I think probably what's happening in, happening in telly now is we're sort of getting rid of those labels. That was Emma Loach with Chair Emma Morgan ending that look at Factual TV. In London, we had a real treat with a masterclass from the creators of BBC Three breakthrough show, Murder in Successville. Let's hear an infamous clip with guest Jamie Lang and show creator Tom Davis and then from the team behind the show. This is Harry Styles and his gang. They're as lethal as they are ugly. He's a madman. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to hear everything I say through that wire. Mm -hmm. Repeat everything I say. Repeat everything I say. No, not now. When, I, when you've got the earpiece and you're in there, that's when you repeat everything I say, okay? Okay. You need to be tough in there, kid. And we think it's all right on my first day to go in there? What, are you scared? No, I'm not scared, obviously. Well, what do you want? Do you want me to send you down to plant some flowers at the roundabout? No, I want to go... Do you know what I did on my first day? What? I took a gun. I went down to a biker gang. Yeah. And I took them all out for no goddamn reason. How does that make you feel? Are you scared of me? No. Why not? Why don't you not be scared when I tell you I've killed people? Do you think I'm pathetic? No. Do you think people have sex with my wife behind my back? No. They do. <laughs> He was incredible. Jamie was incredible. He was a joy. He yeah. really was. He was, yeah. he was perfect. When really the fun. cameras stopped, he carried on interviewing me yeah. to find out who had murdered Bruno Tonio. <laughs> Reality styles are weirdly yeah. quicker at improvising. Yeah, they are. I think the way they yeah. shoot those shows is actually a lot of go in that room and pretend yeah. you've had a breakup and stuff. So. Um, so those are obviously the celebrities who do the show, but obviously there's a whole cast of people impersonating celebrities. Yeah. How do you choose those characters? Because obviously you have more freedom with that because you don't have to get the, you know, 
I think get them to agree to it. I think we're running out of people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're running, but also it's finding. You have staples of the cast. You've been with us for three years, Luke Kempner, Colin Holt, and you. So we sort of throw it out to see who people can do. We might have a, an idea of, you know, oh, we'd like to see a version of this person. But then it's like really random things that, you know, so Ellie White this year plays Bjork, and it was that was just her coming in. And we were like, look, Ellie, we really, you know, who do you, who do you want to do? And she was just like, what about Bjork? As an art, art zone in an art gallery, like, yeah, cool, that work. And but sometimes, you know, and it, we're, we're really conscious of never being mean actually about the people that people are impersonating because that's not the sort of show it is. And there's so it's really, really it's, it's a version of that person. But like the Car Brothers, basically with a craze, as Alan and Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not coming in and, and spoofing them. It's just doing their voice, but that they have a different world and, and things that they they work in, I guess, and work so, out. Something normally clicks when we talk about it, like a, a seed of something, and that might be an incredible impression that we add to with the character. So we'll go, we need a fisherman, and we know Colin can do this impression, and we can put those two together with Ian McKellen, because that kind of seems to work. And then sometimes it's just uh, like that. Someone will come in and go, I can do this, and we think that's Well, it's like, I mean, the one, oh, God, who is it? I've forgotten his name. <laughs> the celebrity. He's young, and I didn't know who he was. <laughs> the Angela Merkel episode. Oh, George Shelley. George Shelley, yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I knew he was, he's very nice. He's a nice boy. But well, we, we did have two days with him. <laughs> <laughs> He was, I enjoyed hanging out with Rochelle. I didn't know who he was. Um, originally, that was, I was supposed to be Sue Perkins. Mm, yeah. And then yeah. we sort of tried it, and it just was like, I think maybe I couldn't get enough. We weren't sure what to do that. And but then was, Angela Merkel just made us laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so weird, because Sue Perkins is so funny. Yeah. Sue Perkins is, as herself, really funny. So it's really hard then to... So, and then weirdly, if you go, well, Angela Merkel's going to be this really needy pathologist who sort of <laughs> sleeps, got this weird friendship with, that they hang out and go bowling together. It just worked. Yeah. And it's and it started things like we knew Luke Kempner could do an amazing Andy Murray. Yeah, so we yeah. pushed that as a thing. And here's and Jeremy Kyle as well. I think oh, it's exceptional. Man, it, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was Sometimes great. they really work. Sometimes, yeah. you know, yeah. So Carla's a sort of, you know, Wolf of Wall Street coach, yeah. sniffing banker, yeah. horrible. But we never wanted it to be judged on the level of the impression. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's I, like I Miley Cyrus was, yeah. again, yeah, it was yeah. such a Miley Cyrus one's an old people's home. <laughs> it's like, that's ridiculous. But weirdly, it just worked. It yeah. is like there's a successful formula, isn't it? It's like yeah, yeah. you have to, they have to, the celebrity you, does something and has to go, oh yeah, that works. Yeah. Like, we talked today with the, with, the, with the one about the Victorian one, like we wanted to do Will I Am and, and he was in another episode we were going to do and yeah. that worked, I think it was the superheroes one. And then suddenly we had a chat and we were like, oh, we're doing this Victorian one, what about if Will I Am's this kind of steampunk guy about the future, because that's very Victorian, but it's also very Will I Am. And then we all just go, yep, that's completely <laughs> yeah. right. And Paloma Faith running a brothel yeah. with her voice, and that you know it sort of works really. It's it's you start to piece and it for, together. And yeah. For years we wanted to do Jamie Oliver, and there was no one who could nail it. And then Tony Way came in. Who Tony Way is, you know, he was Harry Styles in in that. He sort of does one character every year, and we were like, look, you know, we've got this Jamie Oliver thing, and he just did this this lisp, and you're like, oh, wow, that. That's hilarious, and you know, and that sort of scene, he sort of really owned well, that what, what works there is you've got someone like Terry Minot, who's an incredible yeah. impression. So you've got an amazing Jonathan Ross, which buys you a really mm. silly Jamie Oliver. Yeah, so yeah. we always try and have a balance, you know. So I think if, the, if they were all just ridiculous, it wouldn't work, but because there's some good impressions, some, you know. But essentially, we just want it to be funny. That was exec Andy Brereton, director James DeFrond, Tom Davis, and our host, actor and writer Cariad Lloyd. 
In Glasgow, we heard the lowdown from the industry experts behind hit BBC One drama, The Replacement. Here's writer-director Joe Ahern and producer Nicole Coverian, and the masterclass was hosted by Shireen Nanjiani. I think originally we started because you were going to be in The Replacement, then I think we both thought actually it's more interesting for a drama if you're the paranoid person who is about to be replaced, it felt like there was more mileage in that, you know, yeah. because of the threat coming in rather than... Yes, because yeah. it's such an insecure, because it's such a wobbly time, isn't it, for a, for a woman, when just as, you know, I think normally people have their kids when their careers are really taking off, and then there's that strange thing about just as when, when things start to happen for you professionally, there's this personal upheaval, and you have to have to deal with that. And, and while you, well, while I was watching it, and a, a lot of my friends, you're kind of moving your sympathies between Paula and uh, the other Ellen, character, yes. Ellen, back and forward. Was that something? You I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> my sympathies are always with uh, Morgan Christie. But that's interesting. So as the writer, you didn't see it like that. No, I mean only as that's, and also that's even having done it, that's my experience of watching it. I think, oh my god, what a nightmare she's going through. But I think because they're both such good actors and they're both trying to play as much of the truth as possible it becomes much more an evil, evil thing I'm, you know, it's, it's better this way for sure but I was a bit mystified when I read some response saying oh my god is Ellen the mad one is like, oh, bonkers and obviously this person otherwise there's no story unless this person that's because you're you a know, man you're not picking up possibly, all these nuances I find you know Ellen it's, it's, it, I think it would be a pretty, pretty mad proposition if you were going to make a film I mean I, I read some you know people writing about it and some people were trying to predict where it was going to go and they were thinking well you know is it going to turn out that Paula is a figment of Ellen's imagination like Fight Club and you're thinking what the hell <laughs> 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 I, I, I did you wish Not that you thought of that it was a pretty good idea actually. <laughs> but talk, talk me through the, the writing process um, you collaborated together or, or yeah we work on the story one? together so I mean uh, we meet as long often as we can stand and then I'll go away and write a treatment and then She'll come and look at it and say, "Bonkers, bonkers, bonkers." There's, the, yeah, well, or, or whatever. I, I, I tend to sometimes get a bit too wrapped up in what's going to happen next, and possibly tell me if I'm paraphrasing. Nicole will kind of pull me back to her and say, "No real human being would do that ever." I think not. I think Joe's really interested, as he should be, in what happens next. Any script, any film, any show. If it's not a, a total page turner, um, it's not going to come in, and it's not going to entertain you. So Joe will always be most interested in what will be the most interesting thing that could possibly happen now, mm-hmm. and sometimes the most interesting thing that can happen on page twelve can be contradicted in some way by the most interesting that thing that he writes. That happened on page 43 and then you're kind of thinking how do we square the character doing these two but things? But also I think there's a very particular gender thing which is what it's like to have babies which I know obviously bugger all about. There's a thing that happens with Ellen for example that for the story to me it, wasn't, it wouldn't be an interesting story if it was a woman who gets pregnant is unreservedly delighted about it and has a swimming pregnancy and is all marvellous. So it's got to be like <laughs> someone who's got some issues with having the pregnancy so to me that's a drama so all the stuff I'd be throwing in it would be Ellen having issues about certain aspects of the problem the pregnancy is causing for her mm-hmm. and Nicole among many other people would say yeah yeah but can you please remind us occasionally that she doesn't want to have this baby <laughs> and it's not, you know, otherwise she, you know, she wouldn't yeah. have it and in fact I think quite late on in the process 
when the, the scripts have been commissioned, or just before the commission, we're just about to get the green light, and um, one of the BBC people said, can we just do another pass just to show that, however you do it, don't care how you do it, that this person would be a good mother, and you believe that you know, mm. it, she is going to bond with her kid, and that's where. So the, is that the, the sister came exactly, in? Exactly, exactly. Very, very, very late. Right. Very late on, and it was, it's sort of an interesting solution because it solved some problems, but in fact, and um, you know, the Sarah McRae who played the sister, you know, fantastic actress. The scenes were all really good, but they were a little bit problematic in the edit because they didn't always further the story. And this is the flip side to what Nicole's yeah, saying, which absolutely. is that it, those those scenes absolutely solved the problem of making. Ellen a nice person because she likes her nieces and she does all that kind of stuff so I think yeah yeah she'd be a great mother but they weren't forwarding the story they were just illustrating the character and so with a script you've always it's really hard you've always got to get both they've got to be scenes that you have to have for the plot and they help you understand the character if it's just one or the other it's not so good. Our final masterclass featured the cast behind the Scottish comedy Still Game. Here's director Michael Hines and co-creator Ford Kiernan, along with cast members Gavin Mitchell, Jane McCarry, Mark Cox, Sanjeev Kohli and Paul Riley. What do you prefer? Do you prefer the, the serious stuff or the... Or the no, I like the variety. You know, as a comic director, doing the stuff with the bath where we're going to build a separate room and drop a bath 15 feet full of water and all that kind of stuff is a challenge and good fun. But there is a li real lovely beauty because I love those solemn moments because they do punctuate the series really well, and I, I like directing good actors, it's nice to do, so I enjoyed those as well. But I wouldn't do drama all the time, because drama's a lot easier than comedy in that respect. And drama is easier than comedy, because yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of received wisdom that a comedy will never win an Oscar, because somehow it's the poor cousin of drama. Comedy is drama with extra stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the same rules, it's the same three actors, it's the same dynamic, and you've got to make them laugh three times a page. I've never understood why comedy yeah. was seen as some kind of poor relation to drama. And it's why when Ford and Greg write, they can pull focus. One of my favourite scenes in Still Game is when Jack and Victor are having a pop at each other because you've railroaded Victor into... Go to Canada. Phoning yeah. his son and he's I not interested. Sound, right, yeah. And you have this big stand-up row and there's not one joke in it and it's beautiful. Mm. But it's because it's still, you know, it's still obeying the same rules. Well, the funny thing was, we, we wrote five gags in that, but... And you pulled them. Maybe they laughed. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about in a drama, right, if you say to someone, I love you, uh, there's only three ways to do that. I love you, I love you, I love you. That's the three ways You've to do it. You've never been to drama college, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Be a tree. Uh, but at the end of the day... What with the pull in the head? I love you! <laughs> <laughs> That's that drama. Just staring at a gyro. I love you! Kid pirate Greg, I love you! So at the end of the day, Sanjay's quite right, you've got that on top of that, you've got to make them laugh. And you have to decide, is it a laugh that you want everyone to get at that one moment? You've got to make everyone laugh at that point. How do you shoot that and make that happen? And, yeah. it, and, and there's a lot, as these guys will testify, there's a lot of drama actors who can't do comedy at all. Ford, I suppose it's kind of, you know, the, the, the setup when you're, when you're writing uh, with you and Greg, does one of you have, a, have a, a, a sharper nib in comedy and the other one, you know, gets the... Lands the emotional stuff of it a bit. No, it's never, it's never been like that. We've had that quite a few times. No, it's all born out of conversation. We make each other laugh. If we didn't make each other laugh, nothing would happen. And if we're not laughing at what we're talking about, then it never goes on the paper. If we find that we're halfway doing a page and we haven't laughed yet, all we're doing is shredding that. You can write all day long without a lot, you know, gags. But unless they're making you laugh, there's no, no point in them. But we're lucky because we're at a bit now where the, the, the cast, the core cast, we know them so well, we know what their abilities are. And you know that when you're writing it, they can lift it off the page. Not only is it funny to us, it, we can hear them speaking it. 
when we write stuff for Coxie, we can hear him saying it. When we write stuff for Paul Jane Sands, you can hear it while they're saying it. Not so much weight with Gavin. <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> no, but do you know what I mean? No, it's, it's because we know them so well, we can hear them say, and that's definitely something Tam would say. So there's not really anybody in charge of the emotional bits of the thing. We identify that as we're talking. Sometimes you'll be sitting, because we know each other so well, the twos will sit up and look at one another and go, ah, there's a weepy in that. And we go and we start writing a weepy bit. And, you, you know, you just identify it as you're going. Landing a commission can be a real struggle. So let's hear some insider insight from the execs that do it on a regular basis. Claudia Lewis is a development executive for BBC Studios Science. Sean Parry is a creative director of entertainment for Electric Ray, who make Pointless. And Dom Bird is on the receiving end of pitches as head of formats at Channel 4. And in this clip, Sean explains the importance of your pitch having a strong top line. So top line would be, you know, um, 15 questions to a million pounds. So, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? And sort of like, you know, really most of your show should be able to be struck down to that sort of one sentence, really. I mean, for something like Parenting for Idiots, it was kind of, you know, celebrities being honest, truthful and funny about parenting. Or something like Carjackers was a friend stealing their friend's car and fucking it up, I suppose. It's sort of, you know, yeah. it's sort of like, you can get that idea straight away, and if you can set, that's, that's the first thing you need to say in a pitch, and if the commissioner goes, yeah, that's quite good. I mean, sometimes you'll do that thing where you sort of talk around the area before you get to that top line, and sort of like, some, actually, sometimes you do that, and you sort of realise, oh God, I'm talking for a long time before I've got to this idea, because I feel like it needs ballast, it needs kind of... It's just to chip in, because Parenting for Idiots is a show that I commissioned from an electric race. And the other thing you need is a bit of sort of serendipity, which is, in the channel, we were talking about parenting and how it's a helicopter parenting is a big thing and uh, are we wrapping our kids in cotton wool and we sort of got to the point of thinking well we're all just doing our best you know to raise kids and no one really tells you how to do it but we couldn't find a way into it that didn't feel worthy and a bit kind of sort of up it's all finger waggy isn't yeah. it yeah and then and then these guys came in with parenting for idiots which was basically saying putting a hand in the air saying none of us know what we're doing and we're going to get a whole load of celebrities who are willing just to put go on record and talk about how hopeless they are. And so it was kind of obvious to us that we, can't, we were battling with that for ages, but we couldn't find a way to do it. And these guys had a way to do it. So you sort of need a bit of tension from both sides sometimes. Mm, and that, that, it just worked out in that, in that case. And Claudia, what sort of people do you look for to work in development? What qualities do you need to be a brilliant development researcher? So you have to be full of ideas and you have to be resilient and have enough self-confidence to realise if your idea doesn't fly or someone doesn't like your idea, no ideas are bad ideas, it just might not be the right thing at, the, at, the, at that time. But you need to constantly be thinking, oh, wouldn't that be interesting if we did it that way? Oh, I read this really interesting article, and wouldn't it be interesting if we took this person and did that? So you need to be constantly thinking in that way. And the other thing is, once you start on a development team, it's, it's really important that you know how to write up your idea into a way that feels sellable and feels attractive. In our team, we say that an idea needs to feel really mouth-watering in order to get it across to a commissioner. So you need to be able to write up your idea into a short treatment, a short couple of pages, that, just like you understand what the idea is when you're verbally selling it in the top line, but by the time you're halfway down the first page of that treatment, you absolutely understand what that idea is about. 
That was Claudia Lewis. Now, directing that first hour can be a challenge, so let's hear from a TV maker who's done it already and has the scars to prove it. This is David Nath, director of Channel 4's The Murder Detectives, on how he shot his ambitious opening to the series. Your host is Fintan Maguire of Spun Gold TV, but first, let's hear a clip from the programme. Most people lead good lives. Make the right choices between what's right and what's wrong. They stay within the lines. Till the day comes when they make the wrong call. A decision made in a split second. Can I have some help down here, please? <laughs> the young man lying dead. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. A family desperate to know why. I'm begging you, please contact the police. <laughs> Here's whoever done it in our midst. We will get him. It's just a matter of time. I kind of feel that what's on telly is really quite ordinary and quite... Um, it replicates itself, it's quite homogenous. So there is a, I think there's a place to be distinctive and there's a gap to be distinctive, but... You need to, it's a visual medium, it's a creative medium, you need to be creative and bold and distinct in, in, in what you do, because otherwise, why are you doing it? I, I, that's, what, what, that's what I would say about yeah. it. So, so in terms of that specific um, clip, or you know, your, your process in the lead up to that, yeah. what were the challenges and what was the goal? Well, so there's been loads of observational um, documentary series about police and, and murder investigations, and there's, there's been some really good ones. So when I was asked if I wanted to make another one, I thought, oh, I don't want to make another one because the ones that have been on before have been really, really good. So if I'm going to do something, I'm going to bring something different to it. So I, I thought really, really carefully before committing to it about how I was going to do it. And I, I suppose it's also, by that stage, I'd become a little bit tired of making things the same way as well. And it's a bit of an evolution, without saying wanky about it, you, get, you, you sort of evolve as a filmmaker mm. and you get to a point where you become more confident about trying new things. Mm. And I think that's where I'd got to with that. And so I thought um, the, the, the world in which you inhabit in a murder is in, inherently dramatic. But I was also of the view of, I wanted, quite, I wanted a young audience to watch it. And I know you can't, that's not science but I wanted to try and make it feel um, that you weren't, it wasn't hard work to watch. And borrowing some of the tropes of drama, I kind of felt that you would, it, it gives, it's, an, it's a slightly easier watch, but it enables people who might not otherwise engage with it to learn something out of it. And that was, that was a, quite a lot to do with how I, how I, I made it. And it, I think, it feels quite drama-like in places, but it also feels very documentary in places as well. 
And was that something that you set out to do, or do you think that it almost organically happened as you went through the filming process? No, I set out to do it like really overtly. I mean, the sequence at the top is quite unusual actually, because I think you often have plans about how you might shoot the top of a film, and often by the time it's on the TV, it bears no resemblance to a thought you had like a year and a half <laughs> later. But that's ex <laughs> the words are different there. But like shooting with Steadicam, and like I had a I knew I had a shot of this one copper walking through, and I thought, right, I'm going to do it on St Paul's Carnival because it's going to look amazing. So all those things miraculously did translate to how I'd imagined it. And in terms of some specific tips, like, was it sort of... We were talking earlier, and you were saying there's some things that you used, some sort of slight tricks and like, to be continued at the end of the episode, for example, mm. that you took from... Specifically yeah, for I mean, grammar. There was, I mean, there's certain like fundamental things I thought, like which is quite often what you you don't do in documentaries. Like, I tried to get rid of the presence of the director and the crew. There's no questions in it. Nobody's interviewed on the move. You don't hear the director. Uh, there's no uh, typical, you know, orthodox interviews. They're all, if there is any interviews, they're they're shot in profile, and you can't quite tell that they're interviews. I used like voice track loads, so I'd sit down and do hours of interviews with people, but sometimes never shoot any pictures, just mm. shoot audio. And you get a very different experience when somebody's not having a camera point at them. The music is quite big in it. Yeah, it's, it, and there's little sort of smaller things that have a quite a disproportionate effect. Like I cut a sort of drama tease at the beginning of the second and third episodes. And like you said, that at the end of the first and second episodes, there's a to be continued. And it was, it, unusually, it was stripped across three nights. There was a, sh a very shared, I mean, Channel 4 were absolutely brilliant with it. Uh, the ambition was, was very shared. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, and I don't think it is a lot of the time, is it? It's not, it's not, it's, it, there's a lot of that. Yeah. But they, I, they were brilliant on that. David Nath speaking to Fintan Maguire. Finally today, audiences aren't huddled around the TV in the front room anymore. You have to innovate to find them. So get some inspiration from the team behind Channel 4 hit drama Humans and their immersive marketing campaign. Christos Savides is senior digital producer at Channel 4 and your chair is digital futurist Anna Cronin. Humans was Channel 4's best original drama launch of all time after we brought Persona Synthetics, the fictional brand from the show, into the real world. The second series of Humans sees the Sims waking up and becoming conscious. Is this fear? To start teasing audiences, we launched a real-world Persona Synthetics product recall campaign across multiple media formats. If your Sims displays any unusual behavior, it must be urgently recalled and undergo a process of recalibration. The centerpiece of this recall was a European entertainment first, an innovative chatbot giving viewers the chance to interact in real time with a synthetic human customer care advisor. I think we loved the idea of um, creating AI to promote a show about AI. That was something that was just like, oh, that's cool. Bots at the time, I mean, there still are like, a, lot, a lot of people talking about bots and what they could be used for. No one was really using it for entertainment <coughs> or to promote TV shows or films or anything like that. Um, they will mainly be being used for customer services. So then, obviously, we had the product recall idea. It's basically customer services. So it sort of just fit hand in hand together. Um, so that was basically where the idea came from. We started chatting to them, started saying, you know, we'd love to do some sort of customer service-based bot which becomes an entertainment piece 
Um, and then we worked with yes, uh, Paul String from San Francisco. We flew over one of the writers. We also worked really closely with the show <coughs> writers. Um, yeah, Doug talk Benson. a bit about that collaboration with Facebook, Paul String, yeah, it was, QDOS. It was really, really intense and really fast-paced. I think we set up about five days in a row of two-hour or three-hour sessions, I think. And every day, we basically just sat in a room full of post-it notes of what's going to happen and how's it going to work. And I think the first session we had... Um, just internally, so it was like for creative, and it was um, the, the guys from Paul String, and we sort of developed what we thought would be a good story. And I think the second day we sort of presented that to the to the writers of the show and said, "This is what we're thinking," and then they they were, they really liked it, and then they sort of gave in their bits of ideas and how we could um, develop it to make it sort of work side by side with the show. Um, and then once we had that, it was all about script writing. So the 700 lines of dialogue is is how you make it feel like you're talking to someone. So the way it works is you're There's putting a lot of content yeah yeah it's a lot of, yeah it's a lot of uh, of writing and, and dan from poor string was was brilliant you don't see all 700 lines of dialogue no. i say you it's no yeah. but it's all the yeah. options yeah so options. exactly so we will put in uh, we try to like guide the narrative so we'll have a rough structure but then you can sort of come out of it and back into it based on the conversation and we just try to listen for as many we try we, we try to keep the questions not too open-ended Okay. So it makes it feel really natural mm. and it makes it feel like you're making all the decisions, but really we're sort of guiding you through a certain route. So there might be sort of five or six main answers that you might answer a particular question for. So we'll make sure there's answers for each of those. It does feel really creepy though when you're yeah. talking to yeah. it because you I do think, feel like you're I think we knew we were onto something when we were down the pub on Friday night and our team PA was late because she was chatting to the bot. <laughs> <laughs> what was great as well is we had, um, so I could, see, <laughs> I could see the conversations as people were having them when we launched it. Um, and yeah, people just say crazy stuff. <laughs> and all, all of the conversations are really funny. But then of, when you get to the end of it, obviously it finishes and then you know, the synth goes away wherever she goes, depending on what your outcome is. And people are just like, hello, hello. <laughs> it's over, guys. <laughs> End it, stop. Yeah. And that's it from this second episode coming to you from Guru Live 2017. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast for free and hear more inspiring talks and insight from across film, TV and games. Just search for us in your podcast app of choice. I'm Rihanna Dillon. The producer is Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Next time we talk games. Until then, bye.